Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We could not be happier. <laughs> we promised each other, we were joking about this before we recorded, we're going to do it more than once a year. So 10 months, bring it on. Phil Morrill, a partner at Main Sequence Ventures. Phil, it's great to have you here. Is it too late in the year already to say Happy New Year, considering we haven't spoken yet face-to-face? No, I think it's still January and we haven't spoken until now. So it's absolutely permitted. <sighs> Thankfully, because I wanted to start with something nice. Anyway, Happy New Year. Look, Happy New Year to you. I follow what you do. I say this every time we talk. I follow what you do really closely and I always learn something. And, you know, at the beginning, I think it was at the end of 2022 or at the beginning of 2023, you published something. What did we learn in 2022 and what are we expecting? Or what does it mean? I like this because... Like you're not making a prediction. Is that fair? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's hard to do. It's for me, it's more taking the time to try and understand myself what just happened and then answer the, so what question about what I should do now this year to actually build upon it and the people around me. Yeah, I I agree. Look, the one thing I think I'm never going to do, and I watch people do this every year is my top five predictions for 2023. And I just want to write like, nobody knows. Like you just don't know. You're just making stuff up. You can say stuff you want to (laughs) do. Anyway, so no predictions for me. I'm going to say ever, ever is a long time, but let's try to keep it to that. The other thing I wanted to say was like last year, you did this thing where you just wrote and wrote and wrote and you challenged yourself to do this why is this writing so important to you? Well, um, in my prior life, when I was running Polonizer, the was making lots of companies. This was in the very, very early days of blogging and, yeah. you know, websites like blogger that you may remember was big at the time. And I dabbled with blogging back then and was for, for those days, a reasonably prolific blogger. And what I realized was, how uh, I was learning a lot of things for the first time, like the work I was having to do in Polonizer to deliberately make companies rather than seat of your pants, kind of feel your way through and do the best possible job was useful information for other people. They can take it or leave it, um, but it's kind of helpful as a sort of starting point for a conversation or something to try and maybe not waste months or years trying something different. Then as my career progressed and certainly as I got into this job I found myself writing lots of internal documents so investment memos and you know copy for websites and updating limited partners and things like that and it was quite a heavy lift in terms of internal writing and after a couple of years of that I started to get withdrawal symptoms in that (laughs) I was not flexing my muscles to actually learn about what it is that I'm doing. And this is where I realized that it's such a valuable process for me, even if no one reads it, to actually have the discipline to extract insight uh, from the work as it happens. And sometimes I don't really know what the insight is until I go through the sort of machinations of, of writing something down. So at the beginning of last year, I it was one of my New Year's resolutions. I said, right, I'm going to do this. And I actually did a terrific online course called Ship 30 for 30. There are some good insights in the course, but the most valuable part about it is it holds you accountable to ship every day for 30 days. Wow. A what they call an atomic post, which is a single idea, just a short, clear 
ready for the internet so that someone can quickly extract value from it post. And, and I did that for 30 days. And first of all, that sort of smashed through all my imposter syndrome, um, which we all have, I think. Do you still have an imposter syndrome? Really? I, oh gosh. Yes, I definitely do. And Sorry. then, uh, you know, cause how dare you think that that's not how it works at all. But in fact, a couple of good things happened. First of all, I just got a lot of good feedback, really great. Yeah online discussions and then even people that didn't participate in the discussions on linkedin and twitter and things what i found is i would meet someone new out in the ecosystem we'd be having a you know we'd we'd be at a startup event or something like that and the person would almost immediately say hey i read that post that you put out on founder mindsets when people are spinning out of universities and it's really got me thinking about it. And here's my questions for you, right? So we're, we're already in a conversation. We were in the middle of a conversation when we first met each other face-to-face -face, and it just felt so terrifically valuable. So I did it for another 100 days and then for the rest of, I did a whole, I didn't do it every single day for the year, but I just found it super valuable and I'm going to do it again. Were you surprised by the people that came over to you that you didn't know? Do you know what I mean? People that you hadn't anticipated would read it. I get this sometimes as well. And I'm like, really? Like you're actually listening. Do you know what I mean? Were you surprised yeah. by that? Yeah. yeah, because I think it's really easy to get sucked into what it feels like is happening. When you're when you're yeah. on Twitter yeah. and when you're in LinkedIn, you it feels like if no one replies to you or only three people reply right. to you, right. actually no one's read it. Um, and this is not the case. I mean, what you realize is that most people are lurkers and they are, but they are absolutely reading it and they're having a little moment, you know, where they're kind of consuming it and having a think about it. And it may come back in their head sort of later. And I think that's, that's, that's really good to know just that people are out there. They are getting value from it. You don't have to have a reply or you don't, it doesn't have to appear in your Twitter analytics right. Right. for you to feel like you're successful. Or to feel like you're just having some kind of impact. I mean, to be fair, right. you don't really care if your audience is just like a thousand people, do you? Because those thousand people are better right. than having a hundred thousand people that don't really care about what you're writing. No? Yeah, you want, you want to have good conversations or, or as you say, just, just know that whoever's reading it, they kind of go, that's interesting. Yeah. That'll help me today. Or, and uh, that's, the, that's the main thing for sure. Well, I'm telling you that I read everything that you write and... I can't stop myself from wanting to engage in a conversation with you. I, I mean that seriously. And I loved the thing that you put out at the end of the year. We already talked about it. And I want to dig a little bit deeper, if you don't mind, into some of these things as well. What is the infinite game? And I think, and I think the most important point for me, sorry, you can go ahead in a second, but I have had such a hard time putting this into words. And I think you did such a great job of this. I like to say, like, you have to be in business any business just to have opportunities come to you. And you've actually put this down in words like infinite game. And why is it just important just to be in it? I think this all comes down to what is the ultimate motivator to do something incredibly hard. Yeah. And ultimately that's what we're all doing. When we're in the startup world, there's not enough money. 
the task is too vast. We have to convince too many people to do something that no one's done before and people don't believe you. This, you know, this is this is really difficult. And some days you just think, gosh, how can I do this? And, you know, even then you get confronted with competition. You know, there's these new companies appeared. They're saying they're better than us. They got investment and I didn't get investment and this is no good. And you sort of get into this sort of uh, scarcity mindset, which is, you know, all about you winning other people lose it. Um, yeah, in order for you to win, other people have to lose. Zero for you sum. to be better, other people have to be worse. Right. The reason I got to thinking about the infinite game, and I and I got to it through the the incredible Simon Sinek and his and his book, um, is that a lot of my work is building companies who will be the seed of brand new industries of the future. So new biotech driven industries or industries driven by quantum technology and things like that. Now, these are industries that do not exist yet. They're, they're incredibly nascent. There are hardly any customers. There is no rich market to compete in. We have to make the market before we can get yeah. there. And so... If we're if we're kind of working on you know making food sustainable or decarbonizing the planet or getting humans on Mars or whatever it is that that we're trying to do, that mission is two things. It's by definition not something for us just to do on our own. We can't do that. But because of that, it's super motivating, right? It's like I'm gonna just keep reaching for that, and as long as I keep heading towards it, I'm gonna go for it. And so, so the infinite game is this, it's, it's a game that never ends and it's a game that no one wins. And it's a game that if you see the end coming, you change the rules immediately so that the game will not end. Yeah. And if this, this even goes to, you know, competitors and people that, and I, I literally did that a lot last year when I lent into the infinite game which is frightening to do. I would do things like uh, with some of my portfolio companies, invite in their competition into conclaves where we're literally saying, okay, how are we going to do this? Who's going to do what? What do we need to do to bring this market to life? Acknowledging that actually we may be giving away trade secrets. Yeah, what's the response from the other portfolio companies? Like I get it from your perspective, right? Because in a way you're testing and iterating the way you're behaving, but convincing some gal who's building something that she thinks is transformational to work with some guy who she's afraid may steal her idea or her IP can get super tricky, right? Because even if you bring them in the same room, they're like, do you want some cake? And she's like, I, I don't know. Do you eat cake? Do you know what I mean? How does that <laughs> right. work? Exactly. Um, I, you know, I think, um, first of all, I think, I think you have to frame the event very, very clearly. And okay. this is where the infinite game comes in. And I, I do find myself, I find myself saying, you know, a few things a lot, but one, I, I do say a lot that, you know, there is no market. We have to make the market first. We have to understand what the market is and the market will emerge better if we're all saying the same thing around common things, right? Got it. Yeah. But what can happen is, I mean, one of the things that happens in quantum computing a lot, because it's, it's, it's led by incredibly clever uh, scientists, quantum physicists, who 
have a strong conviction about their pathway to solving quantum computing challenges um, and also believe everybody else's idea is never going to work, right. right? And so what happens is they all start saying, well, you know, people like me go around saying, what do you think of that person's innovation? They'll say, well, that's never going to work. And if you listen to everybody, you feel like, no, not none of it's going to work. work. You never do it. So it's had, what is the, what is this story that we all tell together that actually leads to this thing um, rising in a consistent and higher velocity way? You know, what are the, what's the infrastructure we all need? Like we have, we have some companies who are, uh, if, you know, one of the one of the one of the projects we've got on right now is we, we I have a n- number of companies who build things with biology, uh, and there is no factory in the world that they can build their products unless they go ahead and build their own. Right. But now we've all collaborated and we're building one that they're all going to share, which is just fantastic, right? So that their their investment capital is going further. They all win. Can I make a point here? Just maybe you can laugh at this along with me. I'm laughing at myself. When I was reading through your article, you said you focused a lot on market making. And now I understand what you mean, but let me just tell you why I didn't understand it at first. We talk about market making in the financial services industry as taking risk, right? You want to buy or sell a security. I am obligated to make a market. We call that market making. And when I read your article, I was like, what is he talking about? Now I understand. If there is no market there, you have to create that market. Yeah. I mean, where I'm, what I'm, that's interesting. It's interesting when phrases are used differently and right. different. That's what I wanted to tell you. What I'm responding to is I work in the realm of government, even though I'm in venture capital. Yeah. I'm, what I'm doing is sort of tightly uh, synchronized with, or at least um, in harmony with what, you know, countries are trying to get done now in terms of building out manufacturing. So, right. and government is punished by people like us a lot. Like how many times have you heard a venture capitalist say, government should not pick the winners. Government right. should stay out of markets. Yeah, they should yeah. leave it to the private sector. Right. But governments have got a, a role to play in laying down an environment where it's easier for these markets to rise. And that's what I mean. It's like, that's market yeah. making. Yeah, yeah. And we get everyone doing it together. Exactly. Exactly. And look, you brought up something else too, which I thought was super cool. I say a lot, no one succeeds alone. If you listen to any of the podcasts that I do, I'm constantly saying this, right? Because there is this sense of like a sole founder having an idea, having an epiphany and then going out and building something big, which I don't think happens. But you want to take this even further. I think part of this, getting two competing founders together in the same room or two competing companies, you call this radical collaboration. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that? Right. And is this, yeah. is this kind of like the radical openness that we saw in that book principles, right? Anyway. Yeah, go, that's go right. Ahead. Well, it, this comes back to your point about what the heck do you do when you've got competing founders yeah. in the room and, you know, they're confronted with this and that, that's the thing. Radical collaboration is collaboration that actually makes you feel more comfortable. It's so extreme that your first thought is, wait a minute, I'm you not know, doing I'm not going to. I can't do that. You know, that's going to give away my crown jewels. Um, and it's, it's, and, and that example of the framing, right, Michael, that yeah. I said, it's like everyone knows. So you're not tricking anyone into a meeting. This no. is a, it's a coming together where there will be radical collaboration. Just come and give it a shot. Let's see what we can discover together. And, you know, that, that's led to this, you know, this is my new one this year that I put my t-shirt that I've like actually it. got the t-shirts now. I put, I put the design on my plan for the year. And these these t-shirts say moonshot country 
Uh, and that's because through the radical collaboration work of last year, what we realized is this is an incredible opportunity for what we call the regions here in Australia. So not, not the capital cities of Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane, et cetera, but the regional towns, Newcastle, Mackay, Orange, towns where, let's say, you know, tier two cities where people go for the lifestyle, but probably in their mind, they're, well, they're either going in a regional industry like agriculture or mining, yep. or they're making the choice to have a kind of not kind of cutting edge world-class job, but a great lifestyle in these cities. What we, what we realized in, in our radical collaboration work last year is the biotech opportunity, which is a series of industries which are just about to explode, they will rise in the regions because they need feedstock. You need to grow something that you feed into these bioreactors that then makes all these amazing products in a sustainable way in the future. And in Australia, you know, we've talked about, you know, what, one of the things we're making is, uh, you know, next generation dairy products, which basically brew it in big tanks instead of growing it in cows. Um, and the size of that industry for Australia is bigger than coal mining, which today is a very, very big, it's one of our biggest industries here yeah. in Australia, which yeah. obviously we'd like to, you know, look at some other ways of making money. Sure. And we can do that. And it's all, it's all going to happen. Yeah, those moonshots are going to happen in the country. And hence the T-shirt. And that's the call to arms for the collaboration. Do you think, because I was having this conversation with somebody in India as well, right? India is a much larger country than Australia, but still has some of the same issues when it comes to second tier, third tier cities, right? And if we look at the history, and again, I'm not always right, but if we look at the history of the development of first tier cities in any country, they're almost always either you know, bordered by water, on a river, on the other side of a mountain kind of thing. And part of the reason why is just for distribution, right? The only way to get stuff from here that we've made to there where they want it was to use water and easy ways for transportation and flat land, right? Like you couldn't put a train over a mountain, right? So the way these things were organized was done because of geographical boundaries. But now I feel like, is tech giving us the ability to say the smartest person in the world could be in a tiny city somewhere with no access to water, meaning a river or an ocean, but access to tech, and then they can help us solve this problem. Is that what you're talking about as well? Uh, well, as well, I think. I mean, that's absolutely happening. And that's one of the things, that's a post-COVID thing that I'm actually excited about. In Australia, certainly people, a lot of people relocated to these regional cities. Okay. And you could be, you know, an, not even an AI programmer for example you might just be someone that's really good with mid-journey and gpt3 and you know the whole new business is grow when you do it from your laptop in um in newcastle but all but also what i'm talking about is I'll, I'll give you a specific example with something that we're doing there's a town in the far north of queensland called Mackay, which is quite a small town uh, most people that work there today work in either coal mining or sugar producing and, it, and so if you drive there basically what you see is you see this classic small Australian town and then you see sugar cane as far as the eye can see because of the sugar cane which is you know, a commodity product but we make massive amounts Australia is the second biggest agricultural region in the world right. um, we make massive amounts of sugar but it's a commodity uh, but because of that sugar cane there's already a port there 
there's already already railways the, there's already direct access up to asia um which is actually quite close it's quicker to get to super close asia than most parts of australia <laughs> and um and so these um these new bioproducts they're they're fed sugar they're fed the carbon inside the sugar so this new this region which is today you know making sugar for animal feed and beer making and things like that we'll actually have we're actually building this enormous food fab we call it which is like think of it like a you know semiconductor fab but it's making food ingredients right on right right in the middle of this region with ports and rivers and railways and everything already there i mean it's a, it's and this is what gets interesting about what we call market making right, right? because you actually just you step at and i think this is what um people who are in the innovation industry more broadly can do because if you if you work in sugar or agriculture or some or traditional industry say that becomes what you can see like you 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 can't see these big changes happening in the world around and actually that you have this incredible advantage to make a multi-billion dollar industry and that's that's the market making i'm excited about i love it do you feel like a town like Mackay, if i've pronounced it correctly at some point over the next 20 25 years can just become a much bigger even like mini city or even major city at some yeah, point i do i think it's it's um you know i don't know how big i don't know if it becomes san francisco but if you think of here's what i predict will happen go ahead oh, i'm doing a prediction now we said we wouldn't <laughs> play, but here's what i think is possible right that given that there is nowhere to really produce these products today and so many things which we commonly eat or make clothes with or whatever today can be made in this this new way right in food alone i i think there's about a thousand companies that are quite well funded with venture capital that have nowhere to make their products today so what happens when they know there's somewhere to make it in australia that's the point, that's the point what you drag it becomes an, a like a, a massive gravitational pull people start coming in because they're there other things happen and it it's like i keep i you know i you know the song uh the dire Straits song telegraph road yep. that's why i imagine the song that says a long time ago came a man on the track walking what is it walking 40 miles with a sack on his back right. starts there but ends up with this massive city and people commuting home on a cold day from work isn't this this part of the story of shenzhen as well when i think about like there was nothing there 40 years ago and now there are 12 who knows what the metropolitan area could have 40 million people there and then you have the greater bay and i this is that's why i asked the question it's like you don't know what's going to happen but as soon as you tell people everything you need to build this product is in Shenzhen, then everybody goes in and they're like, maybe we should have an office there. Maybe we should build another factory there. Maybe we should do all this stuff there. I feel like that could happen in Mackay, no? I love that. That's actually a much better example than the ones that I've been giving because we've all seen those those pictures of Shenzhen before yeah. that happened with like a, a village, literally, wasn't yeah. it, on a, on a river. And, and now it's this massive city that came from nowhere. And the ambition that comes from that i think is great and i think we need to get i think i think certainly in western countries we need to get that instinct back yeah. right that says hey, why don't we do that why don't we build a shenzhen in Mackay? yeah you know and uh, uh and uh you know let's let's hope we do get that back 
Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there's no reason why gigantic things can't get built in Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, Wyoming, Montana, places with wide open. We don't want to ruin the natural beauty of these places, but still, we know how to build clean tech. We know how to build clean oh. factories. We can build it there and create just an amazing new lifestyle for people there as well, yeah? That's right, and that, that's I think that's the point as well, that these factories, you know, no, no one is going to build an industrial anything today no one's going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on things which emit carbon dioxide yeah, into the atmosphere. <laughs> so, so actually, everything by definition, these things are going to be sustainable right. and clean, and you know, won't be these big thumping, you know, gas-producing things. Just to get back to this article that you wrote, and one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on this was because I don't think I've ever said this to you, but when you came into the Arden Capital offices, it must have been at the end of 2011 or beginning of 2012 when you started running this thing about lean startups. Like, that's when I learned about it. I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, talking about accelerator programs and stuff like that, I had no clue at all. Remember, I come out of a Goldman Sachs or a finance background. We don't talk about that stuff at all, zero, at least when I was there. But now that Accelerator has been out there for a while, you write about like, how should we reframe this? What is the point of it? And maybe you can talk initially about like what it was and what, how you think it should be reframed, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so I think when, when we first met, we were in an era together where uh, startups were really figuring out what to do. Yeah. Uh, and there were, it was pretty much the same time where I can remember saying to people, I'd go to a university, for example, and say, who here would like to start a company right. one day? And hardly anyone would put their hand up, whereas right. today everyone puts their hand up. So it's right. very different, very much, much more entrepreneurially sophisticated world today. But back then, no one really knew what to do. And myself and a bunch of other people, we were we were kind of architecting what these programs needed to do uh, um, we were learning a lot from silicon valley but also innovating ourselves to create programs where people that didn't know what to do entrepreneurially could come in and very quickly acquire those skills flex their muscles try it on for size and accelerate their way to a point where at some sooner point they can write they can raise some money and and get this whole business started yeah um, I think if we characterize most of these programs back in that era, they were very educational on one hand. So things like, how do I do lean startup? What's yep. the process? What do I do every day? What are the tools that I use? And then in the kind of worst versions of them, there was a lot of innovation theater where you would kind of be a big company. You bring in some entrepreneurs, they put on a show with your logo behind it and you've done your bit for the, you know, <laughs> yeah. for innovation. Whatever. But what happened after a while, I think there is that people acquired that skill and they started telling each other how to do the skill. Uh, and now I think when you look around the world, certainly when you look at inside companies and you look inside universities and research organizations, you see enough of that muscle and enough people. You can say, hey, how do I do that? And people will tell each other and they've got their own programs. And, um, and you know, and I think we've all become a little bit jaded by the sort of demo day at an accelerator program yep. where the conceit is that what happens is investors come and they go, oh, my God, that company is fantastic. Here's a check. Right. You know, go. <laughs> And in fact, what usually happens is they go and they say, and I'm now raising capital. That's what they say in their demo day. 
And often those companies are kind of dangling around for ages, you know, just trying to actually get that capital. And so they kind of, I, I feel like, you know, someone that's a big fan of accelerators in terms of their purpose, they lost their way a little bit yeah. for a while and they started going through the motions yep. rather than actually helping startups do something which startups of today need. So th there was that observation. And then that, ha that happened around the same time that, we we in main sequence have been investing more and more in companies that we actually found in the first place so we th there is no company we bring people together around an idea and we 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 assemble it and push it off yeah and and we can do that but we've been doing it and we'll continue to do it very manually if you like you know just find every time you have a spare moment you go who could be the who could be the CEO of this company? Right. Let's go through our Gmail. Let's go and find these people and <laughs> uh, look at our databases. And and it's not very efficient, right? And we started to think, well, that's what accelerators could be incredibly useful for. So throughout the year, as we meet people, for example, in a university, this is a, this is a situation we find ourselves in all the time. We'll go to a university and we'll meet some scientists who will say, we have this innovation. We think it's valuable for these reasons. We think that there could be a company around it. What do you think? And we would normally go, that's really interesting. What we would need to see are these things. And you've got these things missing in your team. Right. And why don't you go away and do that? And then they go, you know, all sort of, they get stuck and it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen. Now we say Symbio 10X is happening in August for a synthetic biology company. Sign up. <laughs> Right. And then go into Symbio 10X. We've got, there's another one that we have here in Australia called the On Accelerator, which is for all the universities, general purpose, deep tech accelerator program. We've got a whole bunch of teams going into that. And so here's what we do differently. So that we send the teams that way and other, other people go in. It's not just the teams that we put forward. We then put a safe note into those teams at the beginning of the program, not at the end. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a decent chunk of money at $120,000, yeah. uh, which means that already the teams have got the resources to do it properly. They're not going to try and do it in their spare time. If they need to pay someone to work full time on it, they can do that. If they need to buy lab space, they can do that. Yeah. And then there's another part of it, which is even more interesting and it's infinite game again. So, you know, which is what happens when you put money down as an investor, when there's nothing, right? You have to do something. You have to step into it to turn it into something more valuable. So as much as we would love to think that we're all very professional and we all love mentoring entrepreneurs and we'll go to an, a, an accelerator and we'll help entrepreneurs. I think most of us, if we're honest with people, when we do that, you do kind of drive by mentoring. You kind of show up and you go, here is my wisdom. Uh, another glass of wine please and then you and off you go leaving you know chaos in your wake when you've just confused the crap out of somebody whereas if you if you've put money in yeah you you're you're straight you're aligned with the founder to drive up the value of the company for the next round and help them do it and we did a the experiment we did last year on this in a in a program called symbio 10x this is a program run by uh university of new south wales and we partnered with them on it. And they have a number of other 10X accelerator programs around other verticals. The difference between the other verticals and the Symbio 10X one 
was that the SymbioTedx teams raised $15 million before the end of the program. <laughs> well, whereas, you know, the others generally didn't raise any, didn't raise any money. And the difference was it was straight away aligned with what investors needed and wanted to do, or were all about raising money and driving up the valuation. Right. The way the infinite game continues is in the on accelerator, we push the envelope further. And we said, what if it's not only us? And what if we invite our competition in to invest with us at the start? Talking about radical collaboration, we found ourselves in a room going, I like that company. I want the advantage of putting in $120,000 safe note. And my competitor's just about to get it <laughs> instead of me, right? <laughs> and then you go, well, hang on a minute. Like we can't invest in everything. Um, we, we also can't spend time on every single team, right? Right? Isn't it brilliant if a number of early stage investors are all putting in a spread uh, of the safe note, all helping different companies yep. and then talking to each other about the syndicate for the seed round, right? And the whole thing sort of rises and it's really uncomfortable at the beginning but the outcome is fantastic. It sounds like a much better model for doing this, right? Getting back to this idea, I'm just looking at my notes, right? No one succeeds alone. You could invest in all of these companies by yourselves if you had the resources, but then you wouldn't be able to do, because the drive-by mentoring doesn't work, right? This is what you're talking about. Have another glass of wine. Here's all my knowledge. Go for it. I need to go back to the bar and get another glass of wine or whatever it is <laughs> yeah, you're doing, right? But in this idea of radical collaboration, if you, if you were applying it to the accelerator as well, what you're really saying is, you want to invest, I want to invest, let's invest together. Let's five of us invest together, but you're probably better suited to help them grow and mentor. I'm uninvolved. I can't do it, right? But I can do this thing over here and maybe you invest there. And then overall, the whole thing is better, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we investors learn how to work together better. Yeah. Like we're actually, we're actually in the machine together. It's not like we're just sending an email saying, hey, Michael, you went to co-investing in this business with me. We're actually in the room. Right together speaking to the founders collaborating look i remember and i used to tell this story a lot more often but i remember when i was when i first joined morgan stanley right i was 22 years old and i was in a group called the fixed income controllers and our office was separated by a wall with the equity controllers and i'm telling you those equity guys were idiots i mean complete idiots all of them male female tall short it didn't matter until you joined equity controllers <laughs> And then those guys were brilliant, way more brilliant. So you figure this out, like at some point where you're like, hmm, maybe I should do a better job of evaluating what my competition actually looks like. Maybe I should join with right. them as opposed to fighting them, if that makes sense. And I, I used to call this the other side of the mountain mentality. Like whatever's over there is scary and horrible until I move over there. And then, wow, the rice there is actually pretty tasty kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, that that goes back to the sort of working with your competition yeah. in the infinite game. Because why why do you consider them competition? Because they're doing something that's good enough to actually threaten you. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. What are they doing? And isn't that interesting? And actually, could I benefit from a bit of that? And actually, actually, is the is the opportunity much bigger than anything that we can mutually gobble up anyway. So we I, need to do it together. I agree. Okay. Before I let you go, no predictions, but just from you, what are you expecting? Cause that's how you kind of end this article, right? What are you expecting in 2023? 
again, not like this company is going to grow to this size, but just like, what are the things you're going to focus on? What are you paying attention to? I have a lot of interests in the biotech space. It, it's, feel it, yeah. it's new, burgeoning. I'm going to be leaning into that and radically collaborating with the industry so that that grows. I especially need to do that in the alt protein space, which yeah. your listeners and you may know would you know, had a huge kind of um, hype cycle. Yep. Um, and is now, you know, it's now um, needing to really come up with the goods for consumers to show that it can truly make something which is equivalent to that that animals make. And right. so the companies that I have in that that phase, it's really sort of leaning into the wind now and actually making sure that they they deliver what they need to deliver. Also, when I look at our portfolio in general, we have an enormous scaling uh, job to do. So the companies themselves need to scale. So context here, main sequence is just about to get into its third fund, just start deploying its third fund. We yeah. have 50 companies already of the companies that we began at the beginning of 2017. They're becoming quite big now with yeah. hundreds of employees and sales and a lot at stake. So um, venture is interesting because when you start, you become it's it's very artisanal, right? You At kind of yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're you're eating what you kill, and you kind of go out there, and you're finding great deals, and you're working with the founders, and very quickly that becomes impossible to at least scale well, right? You just start doing everything a little bit badly. Right. Companies need more things. So my my theme for the year for myself is building the machines. It's kind of the machines of the companies. How do we operationalize the companies so that they become bigger versions of themselves and yeah. then how do i operationalize me and the world around me so that it's happening without needing me to be sitting in a chair that is the perfect way to end phil moral a partner in main sequence ventures thank you so much again for doing this thank you michael 